Welcome to the very first edition of the Climate Change Podcast. My name is Dagmar de Groot. I am a professor of environmental history at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. I'm also the founder of historicalclimatology.com and the co-founder with environmental historian Sam White of the Climate History Network. This podcast is the official podcast of the network and of historicalclimatology.com. Today, we're launching our podcast by interviewing one of the world's best-known historians, Jeffrey Parker of Ohio State University. Professor Parker has authored, edited, or co-edited 37 books and more than 100 articles and book chapters. His analysis of the past has often been inspired by the problems of the present. Influenced by American failures in Vietnam, he began his career by studying how the powerful Spanish Empire lost the Dutch Wars of Independence. He popularized and refined the concept of a 16th and 17th century military revolution, which has guided aspects of American military strategy in the modern Middle East. Most recently, he released a groundbreaking new book called Global Crisis, which explores how a cooling climate wreaked havoc across the 17th century world. Global Crisis won prize after prize, but here are two of the most important, a Heineken Prize, awarded by the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences, and a British Academy Medal, awarded by the British Academy for the Humanities and Social Sciences. Professor Parker, I know you're very busy. Thank you so much for doing this interview with me today. So we may have one or two listeners who have not yet read Global Crisis. For them, can you describe the main arguments and themes of your book? And what is so original about it? I try to do three things in the book. First of all, I try to show how in the 17th century we can see a fatal synergy between climate change and human inflexibility. This is not a book about climatic determinism. It does not argue that climate is responsible for everything. It does argue that you cannot ignore a fall of two degrees Celsius centigrade uh, uh, worldwide uh, over uh, two generations. Uh, but you can see that the effects of that climate change are intensified by human stupidity. So that as far as we can tell from the surviving record, something like one third of the planet's human population dies. And there is an unparalleled spate of wars, invasions, and revolutions. I use two sorts of data to prove my case. One I call the human archive, which is uh, diaries, uh, records uh, written down, uh, sometimes uh, chiseled into stone. For example, on the Rhine Bridge at Basel, there is a um, record of every uh, uh, really high uh, flow of water uh, in the early spring. And you can see that the highest one of all is 1641-42, uh, uh, meaning that there was more snowfall, there was more ice melt than in any other year. Uh, you can also look at the records of Basel and see how many people they had to employ to steer the timber uh, racing down the Rhine so that it didn't crash into the bridge. So this sort of human archive tells us something about uh, extreme climate events. The second source is the natural archive, uh, the record of, for example, grape harvests, uh, uh, the date on which the grapes are taken in each year. It has to be agreed by every community. In the 17th century, you find that it's sometimes six weeks later than the norm. So using the human and the natural archive, I try to show how 
uh, uh, extreme weather disrupted growing seasons, destroyed harvests, bringing hunger, malnutrition, forced migration, disease, and then as material conditions worsened, economic chaos, political anarchy, and social collapse. That's the first and major theme of the book. There is a second sub-theme, which is one state that seems to me to get it right, uh, and that is Tokugawa, Japan. Uh, episodes of extreme weather kill half a million people uh, in Tokugawa, Japan in 1637-41. to 41. They, too, suffer from the global cooling that I discern. But the government reacts in a much more sensible way. Uh, the Togakawa shoguns create more granaries, they upgrade communications infrastructure, and above all, they avoid foreign wars in order to preserve the food reserves that they need to cope with future disasters. And although extreme weather persists in 17th century Japan, the country enjoys peace and prosperity. Uh, just to give you one example, whereas everywhere else I look, I see falling populations, the population of Japan between 1600 and 1700 doubles and may even have tripled. So I look at Japan as an example of how even in the 17th century, governments were capable of taking, uh, adapting, mitigating strategies that would certainly uh, uh, improve, improve the chances of the population of surviving. So the third theme is to argue how even small, apparently small changes in the global temperature can have dramatic results. Uh, at the moment, we're looking at a two degree increase in the global temperature. In the 17th century, it's a two degree decrease. Mm -hmm. But both of these, whether it's up or down, seem to be associated with extreme weather events. And these extreme weather events have very adverse consequences for the human population. In the 17th century, killing off a third of the globe's global population is a question of millions. Today, it would be billions. So I think this is a relevant topic to look at. It also happens to be the last major climatic aberration in the record, uh, the only one for which we have decent records. So looking at what happened in the 17th century could help us uh, uh, to understand the seriousness of the uh, consequences that climate change brings. Okay. Fantastic. And what does your book do that others have not? Well, there are really two ways to look at climate change and us. One is, if you pardon the metaphor of a tape recorder, uh, you can fast forward. You can predict what may well happen on the basis of current trends. And that's what most people do. That's what climatologists do. That's what sociologists do, political scientists. They say, well, if we go on like this, this is the likely outcome. But there is a second strategy, and that's the one that I use, which is, uh, again, using the same metaphor, the rewind button. Uh, if we go back to major climatic aberrations in the past, uh, of which there are many, there's the mid-14th century uh, uh, associated with the Black Death, uh, there's the 1816, the year without a summer, uh, but there's also the 17th century, which is uh, an aberration lasts for two, maybe three generations, and has generated around the world an enormous volume of records. No one has looked at them in. Uh, no one has looked at them as a global phenomenon. We know that uh, uh, there's terrible climatic climatic anomalies in China. We know that there are there's a drought in Scotland. We know that there's 
a succession of bad harvests in Ireland in the mid-17th century. But to my knowledge, no one has put them together on a global scale. That's what I tried to do. Yeah, and I mean, for a long time, climate change was something that most mainstream historians didn't even really think about. Before your recent books and articles, your research concentrated primarily on cultural, political, and military themes. What got you thinking about climate history? It was a radio broadcast. Um, I, uh, 1976, I lived in St. Andrews in Scotland, and I just happened to turn on BBC Radio and a program with an interview with a solar physicist called Jack Eddy. Uh, he just published a paper in Science on what he called the Monde Minimum, the period between 1645 and 1715, when virtually no sunspots appeared. And he speculated in the article and in the broadcast on the connection between the prolonged sunspot minimum noted by contemporary astronomers and the uh, episode of global cooling that Earth scientists had already christened the Little Ice Age. Eddie emphasized that he'd found evidence of absence and not just absence of evidence. It's a very useful uh, distinction which I've used myself often in my historical work, but it was new to me then. Uh, it's not just we don't know if there's sunspots or not. We know that there are dozens of astronomers, later hundreds of astronomers, looking at the sun. In fact, there are 8,000 days on which we have observations on the sun. Uh, during the reign of Louis XIV, ironically called the Sun King. Yeah, Eddie, Eddie made that joke, and it wasn't very good in 1976. It hasn't improved. But what he showed was that in those 70 years, the astronomers saw a grand total of 100 sunspots. Now, in the 21st century, we see 100 sunspots in a single year. They go 70 years without seeing some. This is a major aberration. Eddie did not speculate that global cooling might have contributed to the general crisis which at that time was very popular with historians, the uh, spate of uh, revolutions and rebellions in Europe. But that was when the penny dropped, and I thought, wow, maybe you could put together sunspot minimum, global cooling, and a general crisis. And I was so interested that I wrote to Jack Eddy, and with a former student of mine, Leslie Smith, uh, uh, we put together a collection of essays, including his, uh, on the general crisis of the 17th century. And there is Eddie's uh, essay at the back on the Monde Minimum. I think it's the first um, application of solar physics to early modern history. <laughs> and that's when it all started. And so this is someone unkindly said, so I've been working on the book for 40 years. <laughs> well, it's a big book. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Dr. <laughs> Um, speaking of pre present relevance, by the way, there, there is a new study that just came out that models solar weather and predicts another monitor minimum in the 2030s. So who knows what we'll see uh, in just a decade or two. But anyway, global crisis is a true world history. And you don't just synthesize what international scholars have discovered. You actually investigate surviving documents written all around the world in many languages. You also pour through the languages of other disciplines, especially the sciences. Then you gather everything into a compelling narrative. So I wonder, how did you do it? And was there ever a time when you thought this project was just too big that it couldn't be done? I never uh, thought it couldn't be done. I did, however, start off more modestly. <laughs> um, the original title of the book was The World Crisis, 
uh, and its dates were 1635 to 1665. And uh, in the course of my research, I did say I've been working on it for 40 years. In the course, I, serious, research, serious research began really in 1998 when, I, oddly enough, I had a dream uh, in which I thought, yes, my next book is going to be a monograph on the global crisis of the 17th century. I called it the world crisis, and uh, it was going to be 1635 to 1665, which was uh, seemed more moderate, more, more, more manageable. Uh, but first of all, one of my um, uh, then doctoral advisees, Kate Epstein, pointed out that the title, The World Crisis, had already been used uh, by Winston Churchill um, for his history of World War I. And when I objected, she unkindly pointed out, yes, but do you remember that one of Churchill's uh, associates uh, wrote, yes, I have just read Winston's wonderful autobiography disguised as a history of the universe. So at that point, world crisis ceased to be my title and I switched to the global crisis. More important and more depressingly, I realized that 1635 was a um, meaningless date. Uh, nothing really changes then. And 1665, nothing has changed either. I had to go back. Uh, I took as my starting point 1618 when three important things happened. First of all, there is a major uh, uh, episode of global cooling. Uh, just to give you an example of how severe this was, the Bosporus, uh, the water between uh, Europe and Asia, freezes over so hard that people walk across it. Now, you can walk across uh, between Europe and Asia now, but you need a bridge. Uh, and there is a bridge for you. In 1619-20, there is no bridge. Um, you have to do it on the ice. And that's the only time in recorded history when the Bosporus freezes over. So this is a major episode of global cooling. Uh, it lasts 1618-21. It starts in 1618. 1618 also sees the beginning of the Thirty Years' War, which will eventually drag in most of the states of Western Europe and will uh, cause uh, uh, enormous destruction and damage to its participants. 1618 also sees the beginning of the defiance between the Manchus uh, north of the Great Wall of China and the Ming Dynasty. Uh, a challenge which will end up in the conquest of all of China by the Manchus between 1644 and 1683, four decades in which China, parts of China lose half their population and there is the most terrible dislocation. That was my starting point. The finishing point uh, is a little, um, a little murkier. I, I chose the 1680s. Uh, because there is another episode of global cooling in the 1690s, but it is not associated with a series of rebellions, revolutions, and forced migrations. It seems to me that by the 1690s, uh, a new equilibrium between supply and demand, between center and periphery, between government and governed, has been established. And so one could say that the world crisis has come to an end. So that was, that was uh, how I... Um, dealt with the uh, scale of the problem. I just gradually expanded it like Topsy, it just growed. Um, uh, in terms of the archives, yes, that was, that was a difficult decision, but uh, in that I was helped by having worked on the 17th century. I'd edited a book on the Thirty Years' War, I'd written about Philip IV, um, I gradually managed to expand. Um, and I decided that I wanted at least one um, first-person source for each of the countries that I look at. I try and look at all those countries which are crippled by the crisis, and also at some of those that suffer, like Japan, suffer uh, extreme uh, weather events, but do not, in fact, succumb. They do not uh, uh, perish. Um, but in each of those, I wanted to find a first-person narrative. And sometimes I was lucky, for example, in England, and got several. Uh, but that gave me, if you like, a 
vertical sample of the data, someone who, a voice that you see through a number of years, uh, being able to compare what had happened uh, this year with what happened 10 years ago. And on the other hand, I look for uh, uh, horizontal samples. Uh, this was particularly successful in China, where the emperors every year required reports on the weather. Uh, they've been analyzed, they've been published in Chinese publications, indeed sometimes in Japanese translations, uh, of the um, reports, the gazettes as they're called, gazetteers, of each of the counties, each of the uh, provinces, each of the prefectures of China, and then they're synthesized for the emperor himself. Uh, the emperor always takes an interest in the weather. Uh, now, I can't read Chinese, but I know lots of people who can, so I paid to play. Um, I found a graduate student who, who was willing, in return for money, to summarize the data uh, uh, and uh, set it out for me uh, uh, year by year uh, across the entire country. I mean, fantastic. And I then discovered that, in fact, uh, a group of Chinese climatologists had mapped the data from the gazetteers. So I actually have maps, uh, and indeed, in, in Global Crisis, I reproduced one of them, uh, an actual map of the climate for the whole of China, an enormous region, uh, uh, in, in, year by year. It's just extraordinary. But based on this um, very interesting, as I say, horizontal source. So uh, I broke the data down in that way. Um, as I said a moment ago, I looked at the natural archive and the human archive. But within the human archive, I look for horizontal sources and also vertical sources. Let's stay on this issue of scale. Because climate change happens gradually and on a vast scale. It involves changes within Earth's environment and the sun's environment and the relationship between those environments. But human history takes form through activities that are local and short-term and overall very small. In your opinion, how can we connect climate change on one scale to human actions on another? Well, that's a really good question because, of course, we, we, we don't. Uh, I don't know whether you remember um, back in January, uh, Senator Inhofer uh, <laughs> uh, threw a snowball in uh, the Senate. Uh, he threw it at the, uh, the then president of the Senate, and, and uh, quickly legislation had to be passed that no, he was not, in fact, attacking uh, uh, the president of the Senate. He was just trying to illustrate the fact that although everyone had said uh, that 2014 was the warmest year on record, uh, there was snow in Washington, and therefore, the, as he said, the story has flipped. Um, the senator doesn't seem to get the difference between weather and climate. Uh, and in a way, that's lying behind your question. How do we put together uh, the individual extreme weather events? And snow in Washington in January, I mean, it's not that unique. If the senator had been in Washington in January 2014, he would again have found there were snowstorms that paralyzed the, nation, paralyzed the nation's capital. Uh, uh, this does not amount to contradicting global warming. Um, we need to look very closely at the records on a um, micro scale and then try and put them together into a macro scale. Again, it was the, the, the combination of horizontal and vertical soundings um, that, that lie at the um, foundation of my book. Uh, let me give you one example. Um, in Scotland, in 1637, Charles I, uh, uh, King of England, Scotland, Ireland, uh, wishes to impose a prayer book on the Scots. He's visited Scotland. He observes that in Scotland there is no sort of, um, uh, there's no prayer book. There is no um, set of verses and responses. It's spontaneous. 
and he doesn't like it. The king is appalled by this, and he goes back and says, right, you know, those Scots are going to have a prayer book. So he devises one. And it is deeply unpopular uh, in, in, in a climate, uh, uh, excuse me, that's a terrible pun, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a world which is uh, deeply unstable, unpredictable, you want to hang on to your faith. And uh, the Scots like their uh, spontaneous worship. Uh, they do not want to sacrifice it. And they learn that the king is going to impose a prayer book in the most extraordinary way. Uh, in order to print a prayer book, you, of course, need proofs. And proofs are, are then, as now, run on quite high-quality paper. And when you've finished with them and you've finished correcting them, you throw them away. But in the 17th century, you don't throw it away. You recycle it. So the Scots are um, uh, uh, going to buy their fish and chips and, and their tobacco. And they notice that it's wrapped in this strange, um, very good quality paper, uh, which is clearly the prayer book. And so they know it's coming. And so they prepare and they decide that as soon, you know, the day that the church ministers start reading from the prayer book, their servants, they will not be involved, but their servants will be at the front of the church and will start shouting the minister down. And if he doesn't stop, they will throw stools at him. It's exactly what happens on the last Sunday in July, 1637. Now, how does climate come into this? It just happened 1637 is the worst drought of the last millennium. Uh, the crops are extremely thin. Loans cannot be bought. Plague is spreading. There is, for quite unrelated reasons, a shortage of coin. The sort of thing that the Greeks are experiencing now. Well, we're talking in July 2015, and the Greeks are having problems in actually getting cash to pay for anything. Well, in the 16th century, you also needed cash to pay for things, and there was a problem at the minute. So all of these things come together. Some of them climate-based, the drought, uh, the, the thin harvest. But some of them are totally unrelated. Uh, the king deciding that year he will impose the prayer book. Uh, the fact that the, the mint happens to run out of copper and silver uh, uh, for reasons quite unconnected with the climate. But it's this synergy between human and natural disasters that produces the Scottish Revolution, which begins on that Sunday in July 1637, when the, when the servants of the Presbyterians throw their stools at the minister. And the king cannot allow that to go. And so the king escalates from uh, reproaching the government of Scotland to deciding to invade Scotland. He fails. Uh, the cost is enormous, and it forces him to call Parliament in England. Uh, just as he calls, it calls Parliament in England, uh, there is a, a, an enormous rebellion by the Irish Catholics against their Protestant uh, landlords. Uh, uh, another event which is related to climate, because it comes after three failed harvests in Ireland. So you get this mixture of climate and human synergy, which I think is the way we link weather and climate. Hmm. Well, here's a question that's totally different. What was the most fun part about writing Global Crisis? And did you have an aha moment in the archives? Hmm. Um, it's always fun to find something in a, a well-known source that no one's seen before. And if you look at the records of the 17th century, you will see that there's lots and lots of references to the weather, uh, bad weather, the worst winter in living memory, the worst harvest man has ever seen. Now, of course, <laughs> the world is full of people, even today, who say this is the worst winter we've ever seen. This is the cold. And indeed, indeed, we're just told this is the, 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 the coldest winter we've ever had in North America. This is the hottest year we've ever had. 
Um, the, the, the interesting thing is when you look at the long record, when you look at the record, uh, records assembled, for example, my, by my colleague Lonnie Thompson here at The Ohio State University, the records of, of um, uh, climate as recorded in uh, the annual deposits, uh, precipitation deposits at the North Pole and on the glaciers, you find that, gosh, you know, the 1640s really were the coldest, uh, uh, the wettest, the worst, and that was exciting. Uh, but uh, now you ask me, the, the, the aha moment I, I recall was in Japan. I, although I don't read Japanese, just like Chinese, I did go to visit the countries about which I write uh, in order to talk to local historians and to try and get a fix on local sources. And I remember sitting in the International House in Japan in 2002, and an old colleague of mine came along and asked what I was doing. I said, well, I'm doing global history. Oh, yeah, he said, right. Uh, uh, does Japan feature in it? I said, well, I don't know. He said, mm, you know, I, I just read something interesting. I just read the journal of someone called uh, Yazemon Inomoto. Uh, he says he became excited. He said he's a salt merchant. He's a salt merchant. He lives north of Tokyo. And he keeps a journal throughout the mid-17th century. And he keeps talking about the climate. He keeps talking about seeing people die in the street uh, because they're frozen to death. He talks about the size, the amount of ice. The, uh, the, the, he measures the ice outside his window, the number of severe frosts each winter. You might look at that. He <laughs> bet. So I found a Japanese graduate student who was willing to work for me, and uh, it was just as good as he'd said. And that was an aha moment, because there I had my voice. I, as I said, I'd like a, a, a voice from the society I'm studying, which covers uh, a, 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 a long period. And Yazemon Inomoto was my voice from Japan. So that was, that was a good day. Yeah, I can imagine. So here's another big question. Global Crisis, like some other recent books about the Little Ice Age, focuses on catastrophe. The world's climate cools, and things get worse for most people. However, some of the most important environmental histories of the early modern world are all about expansion. In them, Europeans, in particular, discover new markets and new frontiers. But how can we reconcile these very different narratives and can they coexist? That's uh, a challenging question because it's very difficult to generalize. Um, there is one obvious success story, perhaps two, in the 17th century. The one that immediately came to mind was the Manchus, uh, which become the Qing dynasty and take over the whole of China. Uh, those Manchu bannermen are probably the greatest beneficiaries of the global crisis, because in 1644, they are starving. Uh, China uh, is affected badly. Uh, Manchuria is affected much worse. And in 1644, uh, uh, the Chinese don't seem to have thought it was strange. The Ming Chinese general who invites the Manchus in uh, to try and uh, recapture uh, Beijing from uh, bandits who, who've taken it and, and have killed the Ming emperor, um, that he doesn't seem to realize it's rather strange that the Manchu are all lined up on their horses waiting to come. And the reason is they're going to invade anyway. It just happens that there is a political development in uh, Ming China which uh, makes, uh, makes them invited rather than invaders. And uh, they then take over the whole of North China. Uh, it takes them much longer to take over South China, but by so the 1680s, uh, every Manchu bannerman has lots of slaves, uh, has lots of income, lots of money, lives in big houses, he has a great lifestyle. So they're the winners. That, there's your expansion story. 
Um, the second one, which occurred to me just a little afterwards, is, of course, um, uh, Romanov Russia uh, expands at an amazing pace through Siberia. Uh, you get, uh, I suppose, it's a fur rush, uh, not, a, not dissimilar to the one you have in, uh, in uh, Canada, what is now Canada, or also in the 17th century. But these involve very small numbers of people. Uh, we're, we're talking in the hundreds, maximum the thousands. In terms of the uh, Manchu conquest of China, we're talking of uh, invaders in the tens of thousands and a population that is uh, subdued in, in, in the uh, tens of millions. So this is, this is an exception. Uh, but it's still climate-related. Uh, the reason why uh, I think the expansion of uh, Russia takes place is because Russia is seeking new resources to fight Poland, uh, its, uh, uh, its heartland, um, the, the lands west of the Urals, are seized, shaken by a series of serious revolts in 1648, 1649, 1650, which makes the uh, uh, harnessing of the resources of Siberia very, very important. I'm guessing that's not what your question was directed to. You're, you were really thinking about the Western European powers and their expansion. But you see, the funny thing is, there is no expansion of the European zone in the 17th century. Uh, the players change. The Dutch, you are after all de Groot, uh, Dutch have, have their uh, golden age. Uh, there's a big expansion of Dutch power, but it's not at the expansion, it's not at the expense of non-Europeans, it's at the expense of the Portuguese mm -hmm. and the Spaniards. Uh, so the actual area under European control in the 1700s is really not very different from the area under European control in 1600. The players are different, uh, uh, but the area is, is not. So I, I'm not sure I would say, what was your phrase, expansion? Yes, expansion. Yes. Yeah. I'm not sure we see very much of that between, let's say, 1618 and 1619. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. Well. When we think about interrupted expansion, we might think about our future on a warmer planet. And indeed, many scholars who study historical climate change are motivated by the belief that the past can shed light on that future. What do your findings tell us about the future, and do they give us lessons that we can apply to our present? Uh, they could. They could. Um, it, it's, it's very difficult. Uh, I do think the humanities have got a lot to offer in climate studies because we ask questions and we adopt approaches that are not determined by sponsors and funders to the same degree as scientists. On the whole, scientists have to do what they're told. Uh, humanities scholars do not. Uh, the Swiss insurance industry has become very interested in research on history and the history of climate because they want to know what happens next. It's become a vital part of how they calculate risk. And I think we historians need to be part of the discussion because we're all survivors of multiple collapses. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm um, 72, nearly 72. Uh, I don't remember World War II, but my goodness me, it dominated the world in which I grew up. I, I became a historian because as I walked around the streets of Nottingham, I saw these enormous areas, acres and acres, or as you would say in Canada, hectares and hectares of, of complete devastation. Uh, the, the, the rubble had been taken away, but it left uh, these areas with nothing on it. Um, and uh, there's another collapse in 1989, which, which you will remember, uh, uh, the way in which uh, the Iron Curtain came down in a matter, in a matter of, of weeks. Um, a former uh, well, a colleague of mine, once a student, Mary Cerotti, wrote a wonderful book about how the 
war came down in 1989, and she argues that it's a decision of a very few people taken over one week, and yet it's transformed our world. So we know uh, uh, about collapses. Europe is a continent of collapses, and, and I think that's why we need to discuss past collapses. Um, and historians are very good at that, scientists not so much. The other thing I think historians do very well is complexity. Uh, scientists, it seems to me, uh, are looking for single causes. Uh, uh, historians are looking at complexity to try and explain things that happen. So, so here's a debate in which I think we historians have a role to play. Let me give you um, just, just one more thought on insurance, because it's rather like uh, smoking and health. There are still some people who argue that there is no connection between smoking and the increased risk of lung cancer. Try telling that to your insurance company. Uh, they make a distinction. It's one of the very few distinctions they make. That if you're a smoker, your premium will go up because they know the truth. And it's rather like that with climate change. Ask the insurance industry whether their climate is changing and how it impacts their bottom line. They know that the number of extreme events is going up exponentially and that this has a dramatic impact on their business. They are involved in risk and so are we. But I think historians have a particular role to play because we can add a dimension that others cannot and we need to do it. We have a duty to do that. Yeah, I strongly agree. Um, now, finally, where are you going from here and what's your next project? It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, what do you do after you've done world history? <laughs> right, what's next? Um, well, uh, it's a funny thing. I, um, I retreated into my comfort zone. Um, I uh, put to bed the manuscript of Global Crisis in May 2012. And just before that, I got a message from um, uh, the curator of manuscripts at the Hispanic Society of America saying that he discovered 32 boxes of Philip II uh, manuscripts or manuscripts from the reign of Philip II of Spain and uh, would I be interested in coming over to, to look at them? No one had seen them. They, uh, they arrived in the Hispanic Society of America in 1905. There were so many of them, about 3,000 he thought, that it was, uh, you know, it had just been beyond the resources of the normal conservation team and would I be interested? Yes, they did have a grant from the Mellon Foundation if I'd like to come along. Um, uh, uh, and they'd love to see me. So I thought, you know, what a perfect way to segue from um, world history into something that I actually know about. And so I spent two months, uh, uh, June and July uh, uh, 2012, um, going through that and uh, found uh, so much new material that I decided, goodness, I'm going to have to write a new biography of Philip II. So I, I went back where I'd begun. That's what I did after world history. I retreated to my comfort zone. I can't wait to read it. It came out uh, with Yale University Press uh, at the end of last year. It's called Imprudent King, a new biography of Philip II. Fantastic. Well, Jeffrey Parker, thank you so much for doing this interview with us. We really appreciate it. It's been a and, pleasure. Uh, thank you for asking me. And I hope all of you listening enjoyed our chat. Thank you so much. And remember, if you're interested in these topics, you can visit historicalclimatology.com or climatehistorynetwork.com. You can find my website at dagomardegroot.com. And of course, you can buy Global Crisis on Amazon or just about anywhere online. Until next time, this has been the Climate Change Podcast.